When we talk about representation, we know that spans across all fields. And I firmly believe if we had more black female doctors, the mortality rate in the black community would decrease drastically and there would be more trust in the medical industry as a whole. My guest today, Dr. Omalara, a pediatrician and social impact entrepreneur, has firsthand experience in just how difficult the medical industry is for not only black patients, but black medical professionals. You're listening to We Need to Talk. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of We Need to Talk. My guest today is a pediatrician, a social impact entrepreneur, a professor, and the founder of Medicine and Melanin. Dr. Omalara, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm super excited to be here. Great. I love that you call yourself a social impact entrepreneur. And when I heard that label, I was like, yes, yes, yes. I love that because in so many ways, because of all the things that I do, I also consider myself one. And I know for me personally, it it was really a journey to kind of get to that distinctive of a label. (laughs) And I'm sure it's the same for you as well. And before we even get to that aspect of your life, though, which is what I know that you're you're residing in currently, you have been a medical professional for over 15 years. And as a Black woman, I can only imagine what obstacles you faced throughout your time working in the medical field. So what was your journey like becoming a medical professional as a Black woman? And how did those experiences largely shape your career trajectory? Yeah, so I think it's really interesting. I feel, you know, now working with so many Black women who are in the healthcare space, we all have such different journeys and they're very context (laughs) driven. Um, But for me, my parents are Nigerian immigrants and um, usually like in our culture, there's like doctors, one of two jobs that we're allowed to have. Right. <laughs> For any of you who know Nigerian people. But um, seriously, I think one of the things is my mom was a nurse and I actually didn't do after school program in my earliest years. She brought me with her and I had to basically be the nurse assistant and like help her with all of her patients. And I just love the intimacy of that. Mm. And I think that ultimately when I said that, and I had a great relationship with my pediatrician who was a black woman, Mm. I didn't know at that time how rare that was. So I was like, oh, yeah, this is, I can be a, a physician as well. And I had gone to predominantly Black schools um, for my elementary. Um, and it wasn't until I got to high school where I saw a totally different concept where I was the um, minority. So I had mm. been in a... Um, in Jamaica, Queen, in Jamaica, Queens, Queens Village. That was where I grew up. So it was just Caribbean, African, yeah, American. Yeah. So it wasn't until then that I started getting those, I don't call them microaggressions, I call it covert racism. So it's Mm. either overt or covert. So the covert racism messages about, you know, really? This is what you're going to do? And I always, because I hadn't grown up with any ideas that that wasn't possible, I moved forward in that. And I think it wasn't until actually being in the mix of it and realizing that even the patients, um, specifically those who weren't of color, um, continue to question what, why I was there, 
what what my position was there wow. um even though it was blatantly obvious i was a physician and it wasn't and it always came back to me of thinking about um is it me and i think that's mm. what a lot of us end up doing until we start to realize that the system has designed itself to have certain people in certain spaces and other people in other spaces yes and it's not until and it has also designed ourselves that if we push against that, that we need to push ourselves back into gear and go with the system. And that was the internal reflection that I used to do and start to think about, maybe I I need to do something different with myself, or maybe it's me. Why are they, you know, not realizing that who I am and what I have to offer? And once I was able to finally move into that space, which took a while, it took a lot of time, Um, and a lot of like internal work, but moving into that space of realizing that it isn't me, I realized how much time I wasted Mm. not fighting the system and not having all of us work together um, around that. Yeah, And not putting your energy into the right thing because you're so focused about everything that's being said and thrown at you. Exactly. Exactly. I, I wonder a lot about I, I'm I'm a great um, physician. I'm a great pediatrician. I'm, I'm sure you are. I'm sure outside you are. of clinical, but I always wonder about the energy, right? That it takes to have those two jobs, fighting the trauma that <laughs> and the you know racism of just being in a in a position uh, of importance and of privilege and fighting the you know the day to day and doing the job. And yeah. I wonder what if all of my effort was actually in doing the job? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's also, and I think people tend to forget this, being a Black woman, you are fighting two two things. You're fighting sexism and racism in the workplace. Yes. Yes. So you really have to be tough and you really have to figure out, okay, where am I going to put my energy? Because you can't spend all of your time trying to get people to believe in you and trust you and know that you're the right person to job convincing, or you could just do your job to the best of your ability and block it out. But it's really, you know, it's easier said than done for sure. I can only imagine. But you know, what I loved about your story is that you had examples of black people and black women in the medical field. And I love that because I grew up with a lot of representation as well. So when I hear these stories about people not seeing themselves, it breaks my heart because my parents did their damnedest to make sure that my sister and I did. But it's no secret that there is a lack of female black medical professionals. And from your perspective, what do you think has kind of guided the lack of black female medical professionals? Yeah, I think it's from both ends. I think both, um, a lot of people talk about this pipeline of Mm women coming in, but there is a substantial amount. I mean, we know the demographics of us being the most educated, you yes, know, yes. Um, uh, amazing human beings on this earth, right? Truly, and, yeah. But additionally, I think the other piece is when you're going through all of that, like when you're going through constantly fighting, constantly protecting, that there is a certain level of stress, a certain level of um Uh, there's research that talks about this called weathering, where it's an entity where you are dealing with not only the um, traumas of racism, but also the medical underservicing of being Mm -hmm. 
someone of color in addition to the exclusion um, for the social, political exclusion, economic exclusion. And all of that are the perfect storm for someone to now have so much chronic stress Mm-hmm. in the work that they do in a high stress position yeah, that, it, yeah. that it causes you to leave sooner than later. And a lot of, and you know, for a lot of us, we don't leave, but we actually, it doesn't stop us from having med- mental or physical health breakdowns. And that weathering piece, actually they've seen it research in your chromosomes. We've seen black women when you look at their chromosomes and you measure it amongst white women of the same age, our telomeres, which are the actual ends of our chromosomes, they're shorter. Shorter actually depicts lower life expectancy. Mm-hmm. So we, it's not only a stressor that actually magnifies in our daily life, but also in our physical health. I have an autoimmune disorder. Um, we have a lot of Black women professionals with higher rates of infertility, higher rates of mm-hmm. lupus. And all of this, a lot of times, can be really connected to the fact of what we're going through. So I think there's also this difficulty in getting women in, but I think the barriers are are not as difficult, but I think there's still so much stress that a lot of us end up, you know, that funnel leaks and people leave and shift Mm -hmm. or say, is this worth it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that leads into my next line of thought, because as a black woman myself, it was very important for me to find black doctors, you know, just just for safety, just for having conversations specifically with my OBGYN. I was like, I am not even going to think about having a child with my husband until I find a black OBGYN (laughs) because that is so that was so important to me. And I do. And we have a great relationship. But that leads me to there being a lack of medical professionals, but also there's a lack of support for black women in the medical field. You know, medical negligence is something that's very serious in the Black community, and Black women specifically have been ignored in medical facilities, and it leads to just a host of problems in the future. But for you and what you've seen, how would you suggest that Black women address their needs and concerns without fearing that they're going to fall into a stereotype or even worse, be ignored? Yeah, so this is really interesting. I um, am co-founder of an organization called uh, Coalition to Advance Anti-Racism Medicine. And the reason we actually started it was because not too long ago, actually it started a year ago, <laughs> because in the in late December, a woman named Susan Moore um, became really, really popular in the, in the media because she had gone on Facebook. She was a physician and gone on Facebook and was dealing with uh, medical racism is what we call it, where mm-hmm. you are under service, underdiagnosed, undertreated, um, if you get the treatment or the yeah. diagnosis that you need. And um, she recorded on Facebook as a physician, as a physician who had taken care of COVID patients. And now on the other side of being diagnosed with COVID and having to convince her physicians that she was feeling pain, that she couldn't breathe, that she needed to be admitted. And that's someone and with the had- knowledge. Yes. And yeah. with the knowledge wow. and they knew 
that she was a physician. And I think there, and so I also, I, I got diagnosed with multiple sclerosis in um, May of 2019. And I remember coming in and I remember feeling what it was like to be on the other side. And so when people ask me this question about, you know, what is it, what does medical negligence for Black... I have both a professional space that I can talk about this and a personal space. And I think one of the things that we have to do definitely is we have to empower ourselves with information and with networks that matter. And so ultimately I remember, like, I was just so, you know, I'm dealing with my illness. I can't go into doctor mode or professional mode. Yeah. And I remember my, my uh, doctor colleagues, right? <laughs> Most of, a lot of my friends are doctors. Um, and they came and they were like, I need to see this. I need to hear this. Let me talk to the, you know, attending, let me do this. But it's having someone in the medical space who can be able to um, help advocate for you, I think yeah. is extremely important. I think the second thing is also knowing that there are patient advocates and understanding that what we have seen as a problem is that patient advocacy a lot of times doesn't advocate around medical racism. And if people complain of experiences around medical racism. And so, you know, CAM and our work is really around trying to figure out legislation on how we make sure, one, that medical racism is treated just as any other quality issue or issue error in, in medicine and that it's investigated as such. And then I think the other thing that we need to be doing, I always tell my patients, write everything down yeah. like as you have it so that you are prepared and you are ready. Come in. Um, this And, you know, this is really interesting because when I talk about this, a lot of people start to make kind of connections between police encounters and clinical encounters mm-hmm. because they're like, it sounds like you got to like, And I said, yeah, because in both settings, we're talking about this is life or death stakes. These are situations where I need for you to be able to prepare and know how to engage so that you are not misdiagnosed, you are not underdiagnosed, you get the treatment that you're supposed to. Um, And the other thing is making sure that you demand informed consent. And what that Mm -hmm. looks like is I need to know the benefits. I need to know the harms. I need to know what I do if, you know, what will happen if I don't choose this intervention, right? Not only what will happen if I, if I do. Um, And so it's really important for us to be able to sit in that space. And it's, it's heart wrenching to have to sit in that space. It's the same way. It's like, this makes absolute no sense. Just like me talking with my kids, my seven and nine year old about police and, and knowing that another child who doesn't look like her has not even had this conversation. At and we'll probably nine. never have to have it. And we'll never have that yeah, conversation, yeah, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So those are some of the things that we can do, but I think most importantly, it has to be both a top down and bottom up. So doing the work to advocate for medical racism as a real thing that needs to be be in the law of how we mandate um, help medical facilities to treat us and giving penalties for if those aren't abided by, but also us being able to do our due diligence while that, you know, painstaking long work continues to get. Yeah. Out. And I think what is probably so frustrating for our community is that if you are going to seek medical help, you don't want to have to think about having to document 
You want to think about what you're feeling in that moment and just getting it taken care of. So it just becomes this debilitating, exhaustive experience when you just want to get help. Yeah. And, and, and there is data on why, what we see, you know, a lot of times there's research, Rachel Hardiman's article, I like to talk about, um, she talks about the fact that um, infants who were cared for, right, by disconcordant um, physicians or disconcordant teams, so disconcordant means not the same color, right, race disconcordant, mm-hmm. that they were more likely to die than those that mm-hmm. were cared for by Black professionals. Now, only 2% of physicians are Black women, mm-hmm. um, and so, and and it's, and for the whole, you know, group of us, it's about 4 to 5%, so it's very likely that it's going to be difficult for you to find a physician and we who looks like us. And that shouldn't have to be the thing that we have to do to keep us alive. Right. However, it is something that I do, you know, promote. And if you have the bandwidth, if you're living in an area, I do want to make sure that you consider or think about that. And I think the reason is because of what you just said in those situations, the clinical encounters get to be clinical encounters. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So for you, you were a pediatrician for 15 years, correct? I'm always a pediatrician. You're always always a pediatrician. (laughs) I love that. I love that. But you've transitioned into, as I mentioned before, being a social impact entrepreneur and the line of work that you're doing now is really centered on giving back to your community, but more specifically black women. You created a company called Melanin in Medicine, which I'm so excited to hear about. So can you talk a little bit about what led you to create this company and the purpose behind it? Yeah. So, you know, I have always been an academic pediatrician. So what that means is I see patients, but then I do a whole bunch of other things as well. Um, And any of those who are in academia know, like scope creep of how like it just becomes one thing after another. So I I teach, I um, do research. I also, of course, run programs. And in doing all of this work, it all was aligned around this idea of justice, right? Of saying that, I can do this for this one patient, but, you know, what can I do for the population to move forward in terms of equity? And so initially I was an entrepreneur. I realized that now, which was, I was never satisfied just doing a job. I wanted to create new things and new Mm. interventions. And that comes from my history of traveling um, abroad. So I did a lot of my early career was global health pediatrics. So in Africa, Asia, Latin America, and traveling and really seeing how lower resource areas were so innovative with how they decided to care for populations and understanding that there was a need to, that we couldn't separate taking care of one single patient and taking care of the population. Mm -hmm. And so my goal really was thinking about how do we create health equity as when, even when I was employed as a pediatrician, so I would see patients, but then we'd say, oh, they have some social issues. How do we integrate addressing homelessness or addressing food insecurity in the clinical setting? Because it would be a missed opportunity for our patients not to. And in doing that, it came to a head where I had big ideas and my institution was kind of like, slow down, slow down. (laughs) They're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. (laughs) I don't want to, that I'm not built that way. Um, So so ultimately what what happened though, was I did have to slow down because when I developed my illness, I realized that I needed to 
sit in that space of stillness that a lot of us as black women don't do yeah. and start to realize what was my purpose and my vision. And I we also I don't have the luxury to be able to do that. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so God sat me down because I would not, if, because um, my diagnosis actually, how I, how I am presented was I was unable to walk. Oh, wow. So, wow. um, so it literally sat me down mm. and in that space of reflection, I was able to start to identify, you know, my vision is impacting more of our, our people, but in order to do that really well, those who are healers also need to be filled and able to do that work and feel like they're, they're at their highest level. And that was not how I felt. And Mm. so I knew when I had that diagnosis, I didn't want any other health provider to feel this. And I was just like, how, as I go through this journey of healing, I want to document, I want to figure out how I'm doing it so I can replicate it and share that with other women. And that's what Melanin Medicine initially began to be. I realized that it also was a space where I need to separate myself from organizations and the trauma and Mm -hmm. the triggering and do deep reflection. And I noticed that a lot of health providers who come into our fold, our community, our resources, our programs, they are doing the same things stepping away, seeing who they, they want to become, rediscovering who it is, and then giving, we give them the resources potentially to pursue social entrepreneurship as a way to do the things that they're called to do, but not feeling that they have to do them by an institution or status quo that they can actually create the things that they envision. Yeah. I love that. And I love what the, you know, the sign that God gave you basically when you're like, Hey, he was like, you got to sit down. You got to sit down. And, it, and sometimes it's frustrating to feel like you're going through this, this hard patch in your life. But look at where you are now, right? So you have to kind of count it all joy and look back. But for other people that might be feeling what you were feeling, what kind of signs do you think that people should look for within themselves or their work environment for them to know that it's it's time to possibly move on and maybe they should be pursuing something else? Yeah, I think one is really... Oh, your body mm. um, is a late, a late sign, but a sign that never lies. Right. Yeah. And I think that what happens is it's almost as a pediatrician. I remember um, diagnosing kids and like, I was like, okay, the stomach aches always happen on Monday morning. Okay. <laughs> They're never there on the weekend. Okay. Mm. They never mm-hmm. there. And, and for many of us, a lot of us are dealing with joint pains, um, uh, headaches, other things. And it literally is like when we are at work or when we are about to go in or, and starting to see that our body is telling us, this is not making me feel good. What you're yeah. doing right now is not yeah. helping me. Some of us don't have a choice. Some of us um, really don't have an option. Um, I ha- I was salaried, right? I mm-hmm. had medical leave, like I had those options. But I do think that one, we need to think about our bodies too. We also need to start recognizing um, what is it, I would say, what is it that the people we love like are telling us? Because mm. I think that I was also getting messages like I was, you know, of, oh, yeah, mommy's not going to be able to do that. Or this, you know, just little things in our lives where we start to sit back and see, 
am I like living the way that I thought <laughs> I, yeah. I wanted to live? Like, yeah. am I spending the time doing the things that are, are my core values? Um, and so in that space, I think it was really important for, I think it's really important for us to start to say, um, where is the joy? Where are my values? And where's my vision in my life? And if those three are, for me, it was like crickets. I was like, um, wow, can't answer. Right and that's when you, yeah, that's when you knew. <laughs> it was a very clear sign for you. I love that. I love that. So you've helped over 200 women at this point with your company, which is incredible. So what are some of the common stories that you've heard from women that you've helped in terms of why they're making this shift in their life? Yeah, so I think a huge piece of this um, really is the idea that more of us are speaking up, more of us have platforms, more Love of us that. are saying there isn't this middleman or you can't say that we're not letting you on the air. Um, right. You know, there, is, there are more of us who are able to break out and say, no, it doesn't have to look like this and I'm still going to survive, you know? Yeah. And I yeah. think as we see that, you know, some of us, we like to say are like the lunatics, right? Who go out and then you just need one lunatic who thinks that, you know, <laughs> what you're doing isn't that crazy. And then a bunch of more people <laughs> will, will start. Yeah. And I think it's like we've said that my mom was a serial entrepreneur, but it, I was always on my dad's side. He was, he's a pensioned like employee worked every day. And I was like, that looks good. And then <laughs> I shifted after I was like, Oh no, this is not going to work for me. Right. But I had a model. I had yeah. somebody I could see that I was like, Oh, she's doing really well. And she is running her own thing. And so I think for many of us, it's that space of, um, seeing, having to have a community. Um, I think the story has been isolation and feeling like I'm the only one mm -hmm. who's going through this and there's something wrong with me. Like yeah. everyone else seems happy. Everyone else is basically struggling in silence. <laughs> Very much so. And, Very much so. And so I, that, I think that's been exciting. I think one of the things right now is really the work that we're trying to do with a lot of these healthcare leaders and women is to say to themselves, whether it be inside or outside, you can make it the way you want to, right? Some of you feel compelled that you have to do it this way. Some of you are going to be the linchpin for those organizations to actually hold their feet to the fire and do what it is that they are keep claiming that they're, they're trying to do. Yeah. And, and that's our goal with Melon Medicine to make those things not impossible and make sure our communities are the beneficiaries of all that genius that we possess. I love that. And, you know, just kind of following up on one thing that you said, when you said, you know, more people are speaking out now, I think that's also a testament to the beauty of social media that we can see that there are yes. other people that feel the exact same way. I mean, there are obviously plus and, you know, pros and cons to social media, but I definitely do think that that's one of the pros that you're able to see other people's stories and be like, oh, okay, I'm validated in a sense. I, I was feeling this way or I want to figure out a way to, to change my life. So I love that. And I do agree. I think people being having platforms and using their voices is just only for sure. Yeah. So yeah, I'm a firm believer, you know, that everything happens for a reason. And I think with your story, that was apparent. And looking back though, at your entire journey, just from medical school to where you are now, do you feel like every part of your journey was necessary to get to where you are today? I do. I often um, 
say, you know, for many of us who are moving into social entrepreneurship and doing the work on our own terms that, you know, we have to do the inner work. And I think, and we have to look at the breadcrumbs and, you know, the first thing that we do is look back and say, this was not by accident. Like mm-hmm. you can see the the drops that I had to, you know, go abroad and get those innovative ideas. I had to go through multiple sclerosis so I could understand what it's like on that other side and, and, and really understand the, the importance of making sure that we as a people are respected and seeing kind of palpably feeling what that looks like and what that feels like. You know, I often say my diagnosis was the, you know, was one of the best things that happened to me. I didn't say that at the time. I was not happy. Right. Um, But it was, (laughs) of course, it was. And I, you know, I think for me, I am the sixth pregnancy, the first live child of my mom and it um comes with a lot of gravitas because you're like well why wasn't I the sixth miscarriage and I think I've always lived my life like that and I and unfortunately (laughs) I'm always compelling people to try to do the same and get to that space of and we're like it's figure outable we can figure out a way to move this forward if it Mm -hmm. doesn't exist we're gonna make something exist and so I do think that every part of it of my journey is has been fashioned by God but I also think that she God is you know really able to just do wonderful things as long as we're listening and as long as we are you know uh, removing the fear Absolutely. that we, we were trained to have. So, Amen. Well, Dr. Omalar, you are a wealth of knowledge and I'm so grateful that you shared your journey and all of the stories that you shared with us today. Can you let everyone know where they can keep up with your organization and follow the work that you're doing? Yeah. So um, my main platforms really are LinkedIn and Twitter. Um, honestly, I love LinkedIn. Um, <laughs> I love and it. Twitter <laughs> is like where the Angela Davis side comes. So we try to, you know, I try to go. So I'm doing a Twitter sabbatical right now. But um, <laughs> the the main link that I have is bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash Melanin Medicine Co. And that has all of our short links to our podcast, our programs, um, and, you know, all of our social media. So yeah, I'm super excited. And thank you so much for this. I really love what you're doing and having these conversations. Absolutely. They're important conversations and I'm glad you were a part of it. And to the listeners, thank you for your weekly support of We Need to Talk. Please make sure you like, share, rate, and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're on Facebook, feel free to join the We Need to Talk discussion group as well. Thank you to Stephen James, our theme songwriter and producer. And we'll talk to you again next week. Remember, everything starts with the conversation. We need to talk.